Hello, welcome back to the Sports Zoo. My name is Zach Zafrin, joined by my co-host, Jacob Nydig, for your weekly rendition of the Sports Zoo. You're listening to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We've been talking women's golf. We've been talking Stanford baseball, women's lacrosse, you name it. So much good stuff happening at perhaps the peak of the sports schedule this year. Jacob, what has been your favorite team to watch as of late? Yeah, you know, Zach, coming in with them being so red hot, baseball has undoubtedly caught my eye. This team, one that came in with arguably some of the highest expectations of really any team on the farm, definitely some of the highest on the men's side of the athletic department, coming off back-to-back World Series appearances, returning some of their best relievers, best infielders, and a couple people in the starting rotation that could have pivotal years. And yet the year started off rocky. And so you kind of look back early in the season and you're wondering, is this team going to let us down? And yet lately they've done nothing but the opposite with a three-game sweep against against top 25-ranked Arizona State, travel down to Phoenix, and they win two really close games they're coming in red hot at really the most pivotal time of the year as well certainly you want to be going into the postseason at your peak you know arguably not what happened last year when they were so so dominant throughout the year and just had those stumbles early on in the postseason at home before they could make it deeper in Omaha I'm curious Jacob between the bats of the Cardinal with five players batting over 300, which is remarkable, absolutely remarkable, and the bullpen in which pitchers continue to dominate, whether it's Quinn Matthews, Matt Scott, Joey Dixon, or obviously so many talented relievers coming in off the bullpen. What is it that has led to this sudden success? Yeah, you know, the lineup is really stacked, one through nine. You've got some of the best players in the entire conference. Tommy Troy currently has 10 home runs on the year. Alberto Rios has 12 home runs. Braden Montgomery with 10 as well. And so that's three guys with double-digit home runs, which isn't all that crazy. But then you look at who's right there behind them. Malcolm Moore, Carter Graham, Andrew Bowser, all with nine. Then you throw in the contact guys, Owen Cobb and Eddie Park, both of them batting above 325, getting on base in really any way that they can. And so I think it has to be the bats. And, you know, really in every spot other than maybe the DH position where it's kind of been a, a revolving door, every spot has a quality batter. Malcolm Moore stepping in as a freshman catcher. Phenomenal. Carter Graham, Drew Bowser, Tommy Troy, all returning guys. Owen Cobb stepping up, Alberto Rio stepping up. The lineup one through nine is filled w- with five to six returners and two to three guys that have kind of come out of nowhere, either from the high school ranks or built up in the program to make a difference. Yeah, and with all of those players that you talk about, I mean, there are so many different storylines that we could touch up on, whether it's the freshman Malcolm Moore. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was he not a part of the MLB draft last year and decided to forego 
professional ball to come here and play on the farm? No, absolutely. Somewhat of a bit of a local guy, just up from Sacramento. He was basically one of the best players in the entire country. Number one ranked prospect in California. Number one ranked catcher in the entire country. He was a perfect game All-American. Two-time Gatorade Player of the Year. He was someone that came in absolutely star-studded, got picked, and ended up deciding to stick it out, come back, and enroll here at Stanford, which was has been a huge plus for the Cardinal, given not just how good he's been, but how good he's been at such a valuable position. 100%. Another guy I'm thinking about, Alberto Rios. Like you said, really showing his prowess as a hitter this year, Almost coming out of nowhere. I mean, batting 385, hitting 12 homers through this many games in the year is a remarkable stat line, but he had zero extra base career hits before this year. Matter of fact, he only appeared in eight different games. So how about that for the junior really making his mark as one of the best players on one of the best teams in the country also, just a great character. No, from personal experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this series, most recently against Arizona State, would absolutely not have ended the way it did without Rios. He, I want to say, had three home runs in three games, which is a little bit ridiculous. I know he had a day where he went four for five with a homer. One of them was the go-ahead home run. That was on the Friday game. Seventh inning, two runners on. Stanford losing 6-5. Hits a three-run homer, which makes it an 8-6 game. That would be the final final score. That was the day he went three for five. I believe he had a pretty successful rest of the series. And that's someone that, you know, very few people would have expected given, as you mentioned, how little experience he had coming into the year. 100%. And, and when you're talking about Stanford baseball, there's obviously one player that comes to mind, at least for myself, and I think that a lot of the media would agree. The sophomore hybrid unicorn, do it all, whatever you want to call him, Braden Montgomery, right? Made headlines last year for just a phenomenal start to his career, but kind of continued that strong play throughout the entirety of the season. His ability to pitch, bat, do it all at a high level has been incredible, and he's really made strides on the hitting side, going from 294 to 316 averages this year, already at 10 homers, attracting a lot more attention from pitchers. Over-tripled his amount of walks from last year so far this year, but I am curious what you think about, and I don't know if I'd be hesitant to call it, his, his pitching struggles. I mean, he has an 11.8 ERA only seven appearances and already two losses. Yeah, you know, this year has definitely been a lot tougher, at least from the stats perspective, of what it means for him to to really be a pitcher. But I think it's also just a product of his lack of appearances. He's only pitched in seven games, five of them coming in relief. He just hasn't really seen all that many batters and has you know been able to focus on being the everyday right fielder 
people were just hitting his stuff, you know. He he didn't really struggle a ton with command. He didn't really struggle a ton with his off speed. People were just hitting his fastball and and that happens. It will be interesting to see whether he comes back later in the season because right now pitching has to be the biggest question for this team. Quinn Matthews arguably going to be pitcher of the year in college, but the day two starter, Matt Scott, has been really roughed up the last two or three appearances, struggling with command and giving up hits. So no day two starter really cemented. And you look at what that does to the rest of the bullpen and guys like Nick Dugan, Drew Dowd, and even Ty Uber have been forced into really uncomfortable scenarios and have struggled as a result. So does Montgomery come back into the mix if Matt Scott can't figure it out? That's that's a question that I guess we can try to answer today, but really understanding what has happened to Matt Scott these last two or three appearances is something that really the, the team needs to figure out if they want to make a deep run beyond just the Supers or, or appearing in Omaha. So obviously something to figure out with that day two pitcher and beyond, but hopefully they figure out with the remainder of the season. If they don't, though, let's just fast forward here. Say we find ourselves in the same situation as we are now as we're entering the postseason. If you're the manager, what is your approach to that day two? Do you just try and, you know, cling on to hope that your day two guy and will stick it out? Do you have faith in him? Do you try and go with the committee approach, give people just a few innings? Are you worried about people getting in a rhythm or not? What are you doing? Yeah, you know, I I think, quite honestly, I'm still surprised that Matt Scott is the day two guy. <laughs> let's go Let's go over his last few appearances here. And I mean, first of all, nothing but respect to Matt Scott. The six foot seven righty is going to be a Cardinal pitcher and a Cardinal starter for years to come. It's just kind of unfortunate that some of those guys that many people in the beginning of the year expected to step up the Drew Dow, the Nick Dugan, the Ty Uber, maybe even a Max Meyer have just kind of been outpitched by him. And so he's come in and had some phenomenal moments, but lately control has really been an issue. He's walked four or more in two of the last four appearances which doesn't all sound that bad until you realize that his last four appearances, he went two and a third, one complete, two complete, one and two thirds innings. He has not reached the conclusion of the third inning in his last four appearances, which is is really just unacceptable for, for a starting pitcher of any caliber. So if he doesn't figure it out soon, you're looking at a committee approach on that day two Saturday matchup and hopefully you can find a way to win that so then your bullpen isn't decimated on Sunday but if we're looking down the road at a super regional you have to hope that Quinn Matthews on Saturday can keep going on Friday I should say six seven eight innings because without Quinn Matthews being so dominant we wouldn't be able to survive Matt Scott kind of struggling as of late so Matt Scott Highly touted out of high school, and this is his first year on the farm as a freshman. I'm curious, do you think that lack of control, just that inconsistent play, is somewhat of a freshman jitters thing, or is it something that he just needs more experience with, needs to continue and improve with over time? Yeah, you know, you can never really know with some of these players, 
whether it's a mental thing or a physical thing. Given it's a freshman, I would probably lean much more into the mental side. I think it's really easy to get down on yourself, to get down on, you know, the role that you're giving the team and that he knows that these last few appearances aren't up to par. And so I think it's possible he kind of gets into his head. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of fixes to that, but throwing it over to you, Zach, in any sport, but especially a sport with like baseball or football where you have such a pivotal player, you have the quarterback, you have the starting pitcher, you have the point guard. That's a freshman. Maybe they're in their head. Maybe it's a physical thing. Who does that fall on and and what can either the coaching staff, the players, or someone else kind of do to to step in and try to help Scott out? Yeah, I mean, certainly I guess some of it does fall on the player, right? They are the one doing it. But I think there is, perhaps I'd go as far as to say the lion's share of responsibility on the coach. I mean, it is the coaching staff that ultimately puts players like Scott in the position they are, as uncomfortable as it is, not only for the pitcher, but for the rest of the team, for the fans, for the viewers. If a player isn't ready, it's it's the coach's, it's not entirely, but a, a good chunk of it is the coach's responsibility to understand where their players are at. Are they prepared? Are they ready for the moment? If not, it's, it's, it's a no disrespect thing. It's a business decision. It's a winning decision. Get the next guy up who is ready. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is kind of a moment where you would look to some of those upperclassmen to really lead the way in what it means to be a pitcher for the Cardinal staff. Someone that I think many people expected to be similarly dominant, Ryan Bruno. Bruno, 6'3", lefty, predominantly was the closer last year in his sophomore campaign, he saw 30 appearances, many of them late in games, either coming in to relieve in the eighth inning or the ninth inning, and he was dominant. 2.72 ERA. That's nearly doubled this year at 4.88. What do you think Bruno can do to kind of turn it around and what does relief pitching look like for the Cardinal if he's not able to to figure it out here down the stretch yeah and in 20 appearances so far just not the same player he was last year maybe it was a hot streak he was on last year but the important thing to understand is he's capable and he has it maybe he hasn't found it yet that's what arguably the regular season is for obviously a Pac-12 title is at stake uh, uh, you know, non-conference, uh, whatever you want to call it. I don't know, bragging rights. Um, you, you're out there to win. But when you're a team with the aspirations of the Cardinal, the true goal is to be playing there in Omaha for a national title. So hopefully, I just think he's using the time of the regular season now and beyond to, to, to figure it out. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And Hopefully that is the case. Some stats suggesting that his ERA really ballooned up and kind of remained constant in the 7 to 9 range for the months of February, March, and parts of April on 
April 10th, so just over a month ago, ERA was 8.1. It is technically now down to 4.8, so that's a very encouraging sign, but 4.88 is still a ways away from, from where it was, and so you hope he stays on that trajectory, but that's another pitcher, an upperclassman at that, out of the bullpen that has been a little bit less reliable than historically in years past. Definitely. A rocky start to the season in alignment with Stanford as a whole, really. But aside from one outing, dating back to the start of April, he's had zero earned runs as well as four saves. Um, So I think that he is on the right trajectory. Obviously, you can regress at any moment back to your early season self. So fingers crossed that that does not happen. Yeah. One pitcher that seems not to have any issues as of late, Quinn Matthews. Why don't you give our our listeners, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar here on the Sports Zoo, with who Quinn Matthews is and kind of what his career has looked like and, and even some of his performances this year, a little background on, on just who Quinn Matthews is and why he's been so special this year. Well, the senior has been integral to this team's success. As you said, kind of the only reliable pitcher, obviously the ace, but a guy that had such an incredible year last year had a 9-2 and two record with a team-best 3.08 ERA. And it was almost a head-scratcher that he returned. Drafted in the 19th round of the 2022 MLB draft. Could have made it to the league. Did. But elected to return to Stanford, where this year he had some, quite frankly, sky-high expectations on the Golden Spikes Award watch list. Perfect game preseason, All-American first team, other preseason, All-American second and third teams, preseason Pac-12 pitcher of the year, Pac-12 preseason all-conference. That's quite the uh, preseason, that's quite the expectations. Yeah, but as you said, kind of someone that we will probably see as the Pac-12 pitcher of the year. He has had one heck of a season continuing off that success he had last year, a sub-3 ERA at 276 in 12 appearances, has six wins, only 26 earned runs to show. I mean, this is a guy that David Esker can really rely on. And in the world of college baseball, where at least I'd argue the runs are somewhat inflated, it's remarkable that this guy has a stats line like that. No, absolutely. He's someone that for much of the year has been the best pitcher in the Pac-12. ERA currently... Dropped from first to second in the Pac-12 at 2.76. In strikeouts, he's currently ahead by a margin that's close to 20 strikeouts. The next closest is 18 away, which is absolutely ridiculous. And the thing is, he still has room to improve as well. Walks, not a huge thing, but he has given up nine home runs this year last year he gave up only four so the long ball has been a bit of an issue but as of late not at all his last few appearances he's gone well into the game all the way back until March against Utah March 25th seven and a third every outing since then he's gone into the seventh or later including three of those where he went into the eighth or ninth innings in all of those appearances dominant touching double digit K's in the last six starts 
He he has put the entire country on notice with this string of of six starts into the seventh or later double digit strikeouts. It's been fun to watch just as a baseball fan, but especially that he's on our side and we get to to have him on Friday and know that he's with us every single week, not against us. Yeah, six straight games with double digit strikeouts is just unreal. Um you know, the bats are firing Matthews, a stud, maybe a bit of a question mark there in the bullpen after that, but nonetheless, Stanford 31 and 13, having a heck of a year right now, 18 and 6 in conference play. You know, pretty far ahead of the pack with Arizona State in the second. There is a ways to go, both in conference play and then obviously the season as a whole, but starting with the Pac 12, I'd be curious, Jacob, kind of how you see this season playing out, both in the regular season as well as whether or not the Cardinal will once again be winning the Pac-12. Yeah, no, I mean, first goal undoubtedly has to be Pac-12 championship. And, you know, heading into this series against Arizona, it was a a one-run, or excuse me, a one-game difference between these two teams. Stanford goes down to Phoenix and sweeps them. That That's absolutely huge for the Cardinal, and so right now they're in the driver's seat. They control their own destiny in the Pac-12. Arizona, three games back now. Oregon State, on the outside looking in, they have five more losses than the Cardinal in conference play. That's also a team that the Cardinal this year really, you know, weren't necessarily playing their best baseball against, and yet swept them early in the year winning nine eight eight five five four that was again in March so a while back but Stanford controls their destiny they've got two more series in the Pac-12 left to go they're going to be against Arizona this weekend in what will be the final home series of the year or the final guaranteed home series Arizona a team that's just above 500 overall, currently 9-15 in Pac-12 play. And then the Cardinal are going to head up to Pullman, Washington to face off against Washington State, who's even worse at 8-15 and in conference. So two really lowly teams, Pac-12 regular season champion, well within grasp. But this is a team that would never be satisfied with that. 100%. When it comes to the postseason, it's entirely different ball game than that of the regular season. You know, some turnover from last year's roster to this year's roster. Don't have Brock Jones anymore as he's in the majors. I'm curious, once we turn to the Pac-12 tournament, team will be going to Scottsdale, Arizona. Do you think maybe that that, that younger team is, is going to fare well, especially considering how dominant that they have been all year? Yeah, you, you know, you can only hope. Luckily, this is a team that returns, you know, upwards of of seven to nine guys, including the bullpen, that have been to the College World Series multiple times. You've got guys like Carter Graham, for example, who have been in those big scenarios and been relied upon. Owen Cobb, even though this is his first year of really playing, is a senior, so he's been on those trips and then you look at some of the other guys. Brady Montgomery did it last year. Drew Bowser did it both years. T- 
Tommy Troy, someone we've barely talked about today, one of the best hitters in the Pac-12, has been around for all of those years. So you have a lot of guys returning that know what it takes, and hopefully they pass that down onto them. But the thing that would be so critical is whether Stanford can secure one of those pivotal top eight seeds where they would host not just a regional here, but also a super regional. So for those baseball fans that don't know, you're playing a regional in the first round of the postseason, which is a four-team double elimination tournament. The winners of that then advance from a 64-team bracket down to 16. Those eight matchups are held at the top eight ranked teams in a two-of-three series, and the eight winners of that advance to the College World Series in Omaha. Stanford hosted one Super Regional in the last two years where they won against Texas State, but two years ago they had to travel down to Lubbock in a very hostile environment, and you know that home field advantage could be what pushes this team across the edge into Omaha, and so finishing in the top eight the rest of the year is could be a pivotal factor that gives them the home court advantage later on in the year that that could make a huge difference and so as they've made it far these last couple of years do you anticipate the same level of success or even perhaps i should say more so i mean right now ranked fourth in the country just only arkansas lsu and wake forest ahead of them who do you expect to see be holding up the trophy at the end of the year you know i uh I've been let down by our Stanford teams when it comes to the postseason. I'm thinking of the volleyball team missing out on the Final Four, the women's basketball team missing out on the Sweet 16. Wow, that's that's tough to say. Terrible. Um, and obviously, we've had a lot of successful sports. We've talked about that. Golf, the water polo teams, you name it, they've been successful. But this baseball team's going to have to show me a little bit more Having one starter, having Quinn is not going to be enough. We've seen that in years past with Brendan Beck, Alex Williams. They get to Omaha, and they get shelled by the SEC schools. They get shelled by another program. We go 0-2, and we're right back where we started. I'm not quite sold that this team isn't going to do anything different. Um, There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but I think the pitching staff, especially the relievers, need to show me a little bit more, especially because the Pac-12 is so far behind the SEC in baseball. You go up and down, and there's so many SEC schools in the top 25, especially in the top 10. These teams that actually have a legitimate chance of winning it all are, are coming from the South. And yeah, you're looking at LSU, Arkansas, Vanderbilt, South Carolina, so many teams, as well as the ACC well-represented with Wake Forest. And Duke, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's funny, you know. You mentioned Miami. Miami's up there as well, too. Another yeah. ACC school. Mention uh, the pitchers just getting shelled by SEC schools. I think I know the exact game you're talking about. Last year versus Arkansas, two to seventeen. A uh, ugly welcome to Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. No, I uh, I was actually covering the first World Series appearance for the Stanford Daily, Stanford's premier student newspaper, and home of many budding young successful journalists especially in the sports department go give that a read if you aren't already someone that checks it out the stanforddaily.com go give a few articles around campus read especially the sports section but 
was covering that first World Series in Omaha as, as a writer, journalist, really just fan of the team. And we went 0-2. Those games, first one, we were down by against NC State by a lot. Second game was quite close, but came in, brought in the reliever, who was our starter. He had a wild pitch, walked it off in terrible fashion. So you could say I'm a little bit jaded from from that experience, <laughs> but nonetheless, hoping that this team can can do a little bit more than just make it to that level, but actually continue to perform the way they did the whole season at that level. Certainly, and like you said, perhaps as it has been in years past and as it seems to be this year, just kind of that lack of depth at the starting pitcher position. Do you think that is ultimately, if at all, the kryptonite of this year's Stanford baseball team? Yeah, you know, Quinn Matthews can only probably pitch every three to four days. Generally, he pitches once a week. But when you get to the postseason, the rotation at which he'll pitch will will undoubtedly speed up. So you're hoping he could pitch in a weekend, the first game and either the third or fourth game. How you win the second game is the magical question. Because if you have him win the first game, you lose the second. You're now in the loser's bracket. You have to eventually beat a team that will be undefeated, given that every baseball series in the postseason is double elimination. And the thing is, as great as Quinn Matthews has been, some of these teams have seen pitchers at equal quality the entire year, and they'll be able to get him out of the game just a little bit earlier. Maybe it's it's the fifth or the sixth inning and then those questions become even more paramount. Who do you put in for now instead of one inning, three innings, and then those extra two innings, how do they subtract from your Saturday or game two strategy? So there's a lot of unanswered questions, especially about how the Stanford pitching will stack up later on in the year against some of these um, higher quality and, and more powerful offenses, but definitely need a little bit more from Matt Scott and the rest of this starting pitching staff. So a midseason bout down in Santa Clara before two more Pac-12 regular season series perhaps provide the answer to that question. But turning to their female counterpart, the Stanford softball team, a program that you know hasn't, I suppose in years past, played at that same level as the Stanford baseball team until now. Stanford softball sixth in the country 39-12 and 12 this year, 14-10 and 10 in conference play. Just a phenomenal piece of work that they've put together as they concluded their regular season this past Sunday. And they turned their attention to the postseason already. The Pac-12 tournament on the docket beginning on Thursday. What a season it has been thus far, Jacob. No, absolutely. And this was a team that many people, you know, were relatively shocked by their overall performance last year for a variety of reasons. Namely because this was a team that people didn't expect to go so far in the postseason, but they upset people in the Alabama Regional and eventually upset that and made it to a Super Regional And so people didn't really know what to make of that. You had a pitcher in Alana Vodder who was coming back that was pretty good, but I don't think anyone expected 
the new freshman phenom coming out of Topeka, Kansas, Najari Canada, who has been really just unexplainably dominant this year. And, I mean, all of the stats back that in every way. She got her first loss of the year, unfortunately, in the season finale. Before that, Zach, 14-0 with a .52 ERA in 94 innings of work. She had 160 strikeouts. I don't know how much of a gamer you are. That, that just feels like video game numbers. I, that's That's unreal. No, and the fact is she was also battling a torn bicep for part of the year. So she has been just unexplainably good this year. The Cardinal heading into the end of regular season play, they just finished against the Washington Huskies in what was a battle of top 10s. You know, softball in the Pac-12, extremely competitive. Stanford's going to be the number four seed in the Pac-12 tournament. They're coming coming in as a top 10 national ranked team, which is ridiculous. Definitely. And and as that tournament is already just a couple days away, you know, considering the makeup of the Pac-12 standings right now, we know that there are certain familiar faces we tend to see pretty often. Those being, if I'm not mistaken, the likes of UCLA, where do you anticipate Stanford finishing as they sit kind of fourth and tied for fifth right now in the entire conference? Yeah, you know, UCLA, a team that by far and away is currently been playing better than really everyone else in the country. That's a team that I think is not just thinking about the Pac-12, but is thinking about their own postseason aspirations and making it down to Oklahoma City which is where the softball world series is held and so they're a team that I think if anyone wants to compete is going to have to beat and so Stanford will go in as a number four seed tied with Oregon I believe play against Oregon in that first round and then it's very likely that they face UCLA in that second round matchup that's going to be a game that Stanford's going to need everything they've got. They dropped three to the Bruins earlier in the year, and the Bruins are still red hot. Well, anything can happen. I know the Cardinal probably eager to avenge the women's basketball team after that loss in the Pac-12 tournament in women's basketball, so a chance to avenge that one. But anything can happen, especially in softball postseason play. I remember last year, how much of a surprise it was that this Cardinal softball team made it past number seven Alabama in the regionals. I, I don't know if anyone even quite expected them to make it to the super regional. Yeah, no, and and that was such a you know fun moment for this team, and you know undoubtedly pushed them towards the success they've had this year. I think the Pac-12 tournament, given the, the draw, could be. You know, pretty rough. UCLA, in all likelihood, will win the first-round matchup, as will Stanford. And UCLA has currently won 23 straight games. They haven't lost since March 25th. And they're leading the Pac-12 in average and slugging percentage. 
they also lead the Pac-12 in ERA, shutouts, strikeouts, and opposing batted average. This is a dominant team that, unfortunately, the Cardinal will be facing in the second round of what's the, actually the inaugural 2023 Pac-12 postseason softball tournament. And so, if you're a Cardinal fan, I wouldn't get discouraged if that second round matchup is ugly. UCLA, just a, a really dominant team in every aspect and has been dominant the entire year. Where the Cardinal gets seeded going to be so critical as they look beyond just the Pac-12 tournament but into the regionals, supers, and, and hopefully making it down to Oklahoma City, though. Well, it's the playoffs. Anything can happen. Speaking of playoffs, there's... You know, not only the Stanley Cup playoffs for all of our hockey listeners, but Jacob, I know you and I are big hoops fans. The NBA playoffs has been nothing short of amazing when you talk about that craziness and that parody that we see much more in college sports, but seemingly has bled into professional sports this year. I mean, so many great matchups with four of the six ongoing series tied, or or rather two of the ongoing series tied at two apiece, what games and series and players have you had your eyes on as the NBA playoffs continues to roll on? You know, even those 3-1 series have still been so entertaining. Jimmy Buckets, it is crazy the performance he's been putting on. Same with Jokic, Devin Booker, and KD in the Western Conference. But to me, the two most fun matchups have been Lakers-Warriors and Sixers-Celtics. feels like every Stanford student that didn't come in with an affiliation chose the Warriors, not to mention every kid from the Bay Area, and there's a whole lot of them here at Stanford, is a Warriors fan, Zach included. Sitting to your left. Yeah. (laughs) And so given how many fans I'm around, given how prevalent it is here, and, you know, just the rematch of, Curry and LeBron that's been a series obviously Celtics fan here Joel Embiid one of my least favorite players in the league (laughs) that's the other series and the fact that they're on opposite days has been somewhat nice that you know if the Celtics lose but the Lakers win I can still be happy on the the next day it's not a it's not a all or nothing for two days it's been been fun to have those alternating but those have undoubtedly been the two series that I've paid the most attention to the action has been Non-stop. Why don't we start with the Sixers? You don't want to talk about being down 3-1. <laughs> well, I'm saving the most important <laughs> stuff for last because uh, it's just destiny for Steph to avenge his 3-1 loss to LeBron later on in the career. But anyways, I digress. Philadelphia winning game one in Boston. Then the Celtics took the next two. And what a battle that last game was. Down to the wire, the Celtics, quite honestly, I thought for a moment there, won it at the buzzer in overtime with Marcus Smart shot, unable to get it off in time. MV Embiid leading the way for the Sixers, as well as James Harden kind of coming back alive after a quiet game two and three. Who do you think has the upper edge with the series tied 2-2 right now? Yeah, you know, this has been such a fun series. The games, though, that have been the most close, undoubtedly, the games that Philadelphia has won, the Celtics in Game Two look look like a uh, a championship winning team for the first time in a while. Because even in Game Three, which they won by a margin that was double digits, they didn't really look all that dominant. And then they obviously dropped the two others. 
I think that this is really a series that is going to depend on what James Harden does. Dropping, you know, 42 points in Game 4. He was two rebounds and an assist away from a triple-double. Obviously, in Game 1 without Embiid, he went absolutely crazy in the best way possible. He is someone that has kind of reminded the league that, hey guys, Joel Embiid, yeah, we trust the process and this is your MVP, but don't forget what I can do. I don't just pass. I don't just get made fun of for not playing defense. I can (laughs) score on any person in the league at any moment. And, you know, he's averaging pretty close to a 30-point triple-double, 28.8, to go along with eight boards and six rebounds. The Celtics haven't really had an answer whenever he's he's cooking. And so what he does in these final two or three games is really going to determine the rest of the series. Yes, but to your point, the two games that the Sixers did win, it went so down to the wire. It felt like they had to fight, fight, fight. I feel like if the Celtics are even playing at half capacity, they've just handled the Sixers. I mean, a 30-plus point victory in Game 2, double digits again in Game 3, on the road as well. I just think the Celtics have the firepower. Maybe, obviously, this is a later conversation, the championship itself, but for this series itself, I I just think the Celtics have too much and, and... the Sixers, quite honestly, I don't know who else is going to be stepping up other than Harden and Embiid. Tobias Harris, a you know, topic of discussion with that huge contract of his and maybe not the production to match it. Um, Tyrese Maxey, you know, a young, inexperienced guy who did have his blunders, especially down the stretch in that game four, um, but an explosive person who I just don't know is ready for playoff basketball, especially the Celtics who finished with like the second best record in the NBA. Yeah, you know, I Harden to me, someone that I've talked about a lot, but those two guys that you mentioned, Maxi and Harris, really critical figures as well. Harris in the game that the Celtics won game three by a score of 114 to 112, didn't even get to double digits in 25 minutes as well. He had seven points. Maxi, meanwhile, had 13 in 40 minutes. So those are two guys both of whose plus minuses sum to a negative 27. Harden, 3 for 14 that game. That's absolutely atrocious for him, especially because he was 2 for 7 from behind the line. But the thing is, those guys can turn it on at any time. And Harris is someone that is really being called upon a lot on the defensive end of the ball. He's quick enough to guard Tatum and Brown, but also big enough and long enough to do that. So he's someone who, even if he doesn't score, needs to play defense just a little bit better. You can't be letting Jason Tatum and and Jalen Brown drop 30 and and 40 points. Well, it it seems to be like a 2v2 scenario here, but I just feel like the Celtics have the upper hand with Marcus Smart, Brogdon, Derek White, even Al Horford. and, and Robert Williams, and the list goes on and on where I feel like the support is so much stronger than that of the Celtics. I don't know what school of thought you abide by, but to me, I just don't see anyone really showing up or, or being reliable except for him being hard. And I don't know if two guys are enough when you're playing NBA playoff basketball. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. The thing is, this 
the 76ers team feels like it has a little bit more grit than some of the past ones. So, yeah, it'll it'll be curious to see, or I'll be curious to see, and I'm sure everyone else will be, what happens tonight because if the Sixers can find a way to sneak one in, in Boston, then they head back home to Philadelphia with a chance to, to even up the series. Celtics then, if they win, could hypothetically lose one and then still come back to Boston for a Game 7 at home. So this Game 5 really going to dictate which team gets a chance to, to close the series out and on their home court, which makes all the difference sometimes. We'll, uh, we'll start with tonight before talking about the series as a whole. Who do you have in Game 5? You know, in Boston, after a loss, Celtics, I think, are, are a team that are going to come out hungry tonight. I think the game that they lost in Game 1 motivated them in a way that we haven't really seen a, a lot of. They, they were great in Game 2. I think this loss, especially the way it happened with Marcus Smart and the jumper at the very end that didn't go in, kind of some of the struggles and PJ Tucker getting those boards on some effort plays. It, I hope I think it's going to sting and 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 motivate them just a little bit more kind of how they came out in game 2 with that fire. I think the crowd will push them in that direction as well. So I'm taking the Celtics by I don't know about a comfortable margin, but I think with, you know, anywhere from six to ten minutes left in the fourth quarter of the game will, will have already been uh, decided. Going to have to agree with that one. I think the Celtics tape, take game five and with about a three to four score margin and then honestly I think they just take it at, at game six. Yeah. Throwing it over to the Warriors. Oh man. What you know Bay Area fans have been clinging to other than the dog that shoots the uh, buckets on the stairs which has <laughs> predicted all four games is that if the Warriors can win one, they've got Game 6 Clay, and then they have the Steph Curry Revenge 3-1 loss tour. Where do you sit on confident versus completely just hopeless right now, Zach? By no means hopeless. By no means. I, I can't say I'm confident. Down 3-1 in the playoffs. I think that's only 11 series has ever come back from that. Warriors involved in two of them. Uh, man, oh man. It's just not looking good. Doesn't look like the pieces are falling. I do not know what Clay Thompson was doing at the end of game four, chucking up back-to-back threes in, I mean, the first one may be a little bit timely, but the second one, oh gosh, what was that? Steph Curry throwing the ball out of bounds. You know, it just does not look good. And it's tough to feel this because if you don't feel confident now I don't know how you can feel confident even if you make it past game seven and go on to win that being said I think Jordan Poole's production was inexcusable we're going to see better play from him if he's played of course that is a topic of discussion as of late I think that we need more production from Andrew Wiggins Clay Thompson finished like nine points that's unacceptable and yet we're still looking at just a last minute victory by the Lakers I do think we take game five. I think game six is that pivotal play. Anthony Davis, such an inconsistent guy. I believe last night was actually the first time he's posted consecutive double-digit or consecutive 20-plus point games, which is unreal from a guy that people tout as the best big man in the NBA. I think that is far from the truth. I think the Warriors can get it done. Will they get it done? I think it's very much so contingent 
on Andrew Wiggins, Jordan Poole, and Clay Thompson. Game five, Warriors just got to take care of business, but it's that game six I have circled on my calendar. No, absolutely. Jordan Poole, especially given his contract, a player that has really surprised some people. He started out hot, you know, game one, 21 points in 30 minutes, came off the bench, was also distributing it. He was second on the team in assists. And and then since in the last three games, a combined 11 points. In the most recent game, he was only in the game for 10 minutes, didn't score a single point. Is Has he lost the confidence of his coach and his teammates? Is it just a matchup issue? What is going on with Jordan Poole so far? And, you know, has the team kind of just written off that this isn't his series? Or do we see him rebound and get more minutes and playing time and turn it around? Where do you stand on what Jordan Poole has done so far this series? Not enough. He is a guy that was quite frankly, pivotal to last year's championship run, and they're going to need that, not only if they want to return to the finals this year, but if they want to just get past the Lakers. Um, You know, his on-the-court play, I think, is strongly associated, perhaps, with the, I don't want to say antics, but what is going on off the court. His attitude is kind of key. I mean, this is a guy that is so incredible because of that confidence that he has, and if he's being stripped away of it off the court, I don't know. You know, I'd love to know your thoughts, kind of, headlining the news after the loss was his reaction in the locker room. The way that the media reports it, tensions high in the locker room when he didn't want to talk to the media, was reluctant to, then the PR people told him that, you know, he needs to say this and that, and then he just acknowledged it hasn't been a great series for him or not even a great postseason on that note. Curious what your thoughts are on that, whether the media is overblowing this or not. Yeah, you know... Me personally, I completely own that I'm the biggest sore loser that <laughs> we have. It can it can be the smallest thing. If I lose, I will I'll shake someone's hand, tell them good game. But if someone was putting a microphone in my face asking me why I lost, I don't know. I would handle it equally bad. I so I think one, it's just hard to expect these players who are so competitive to be able to do that. But I think you know it it is just a little bit overblown in that game four. He didn't score. He played 10 minutes. He is so upset, especially given, you know, that three-pointer that he threw up at the end there with, what was it, less than a minute left in one of the previous games. I think reporters are probably overblowing a little bit, but I think it just kind of contributes to this, this funk that he's in overall. Definitely. So we'll speed run the last two series. Number eight, Miami over number five, New York. Up three games to one. Who do you have winning that series? Jimmy Buckets all the way. Eight seed in the conference finals. Who would have seen that? And then lastly, Denver, Phoenix tied 2-2. What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, Rooting for the Suns, but I think Denver closes them out in six. I do share that sentiment, but even though I see the Nuggets winning, I think the Suns really just take care of business. So you've got Suns. Suns Lakers, Suns Warriors. It's got to be the Warriors. Suns got to War- be the Warriors. So Suns Warriors and Heat Celtics. Heat Celtics. That's okay. correct. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Sports Zoo on KZSU Stanford ninety point one FM. Up next is viewer discretion advised.